Jack Warner was a big proponent of uh, lush and aggressive scoring. He, you know, he told Steiner at one point, he's, he, Max would said, you know, Jack, how much music do you want in this picture? And Jack said, Max, for my money, you can start on the main title and go right through to the end. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of vintage film. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site for movies from the vintage era all around the world. It's December, and have we got gifts for you. We'll tell you how to give the gift of your name on an Abbott and Costello movie. A new collection of music from one of Hollywood's greatest composers, working outside his usual genres. And a biography of a legendary family of stars that's bound to make you feel better about the family you spend your holidays with. In the meantime, give yourself the gift of never missing an episode of Nitrateville Radio. Subscribe at your favorite podcast app and leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts so others find out about us too. Thanks. about that? That's just a little baby lion. Pudge, don't. Pudge, ah, don't. Be excited. Don't. Here, yeah, yeah. yeah. Remember what happened in Clopper's department store? Don't do it. Now, don't get excited. Don't, this don't, little cat was raised on milk. So was I, but I ain't meat now. Yeah, Take him away. It. Go, go ahead. Go back it. to his mother. Huh? Touch it. Now, go ahead. Touch, touch it. There you are. Uh, you see? You, yeah. There you are. There Go ahead. Now, go ahead. There he is. Look how cute he runs. Hey. I got my finger back. What do you I mean you got your finger? You touched I, him, didn't I, you? I touched a real lion. That's all there is to it. A real lion. I... That's Abbott and Costello in 1949's Africa Screams, a film they made independently during their time at Universal. You might think that Bud and Lou have been treated pretty well on home video. There's a brand new box this year of their Universal films on Blu-ray. But their few independent films are in more peril. So this month, Bob Fermanac, who we last talked to about his 3D restorations and releases, launched a Kickstarter campaign to preserve the surviving elements of Africa Screams and put it out, which you can be part of through December 30th. To learn more about this effort, I spoke with Bob and his co-author on Abbott and Costello in Hollywood, Ron Palumbo, who is president of the Abbott and Costello fan club. Well, welcome. And uh, tell me about uh, Africa Screams, first of all, why Abbott and Costello were working independently by this point. Uh, I guess I'll take that, Bob. Um, they, uh, you know, they were at Universal for, since uh, 1940 and uh, stayed there till 55. And uh, at one point they were so uh, popular and they were the only Universal stars uh, on any of the box office uh, top lists in fact, uh, in tremendous money earners for Universal and uh, in the film industry. And Universal, one of the concessions was that they could do 
an outside picture per year with uh, independently. So this was their second one. The first one was a noose hangs high for Eagle lion. And, um, this one was done at Nassau studios. Nassau, uh, was a relatively new studio. It was a state of the art studio. As a matter of fact, uh, built specifically for independent production. And this was the first film that the Nassau brothers, uh, produced, uh, themselves, uh, with hunting and hunting in Hartford's help, uh, and release this through United Artists. So uh, I think this dates back. Why they went to Nassau was uh, a fellow named David Garber, who was the studio manager at Universal, uh, was fired when Universal merged with International Pictures. A lot of people lost their jobs. He went over to Nassau Studios, so he was a good connection for Abbott and Costello. And in fact, he helped facilitate Nassau Studios producing um, the uh, short that publicized the Lou Costello Jr. Youth Foundation, 10,000 Kids and a Cop. And Nassau was doing a lot of industrials as well as uh, hopefully setting up a studio that independent filmmakers would use. So that was the connection for Abbott and Costello, and it led to Nassau being the uh, studio to produce this movie, Africa Screams. Now, the issue with anything being uh, produced independently is who owns it 70 years later, uh, as in this case. You know, who's who's responsible for it after everyone involved with it is long gone? And I guess that's where you come in, Bob. Yeah, well, my backstory uh, with Africa Screams goes back to about 1986. And I was doing work with the estates as an archivist. And uh, at that time... The only way you could see the film was in these really, really bad uh, 16 millimeter dupes. Uh, they're washed out. They're beat up. They're splicey. Uh, and the film just looked terrible. And, uh, you know, that was a priority for me because I wanted to find what survived on original 35 millimeter. And I started, you know, just researching it and doing it. Uh, I was working full time for Jerry Lewis then. And I was just doing this on the side. And uh, it was about a year before I finally found elements. And uh, the irony of that is when I found them, they were in New Jersey. <laughs> and, you know, New Jersey's my home state. So the old saying, if you look in your backyard, you know, uh, I would have saved a lot of time. But uh, they were in a nitrate, uh, underground nitrate storage vault in Ogdensburg, New Jersey. And they had been sitting there for decades. And, uh, you know, I said, well, how do I access these? And then it became a classic Catch-22 where they said, well, the only way we could release these to you is you have to get permission of the person that deposited these elements in 1953. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, who's that? They gave me a name, Robert Hajaj. I never heard of him. And they said, well, we don't have contact information for him. So it's like, all right, wait a minute. You'll only release these to this guy that you don't even know how to reach. So what do I do? Uh, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and you know, take every ba everybody back to 1986. There's no internet. Uh, research was limited to libraries and and you know a lot of legwork. And uh, you know, again, it was months of trying to find Robert Hajaj and no luck whatsoever. And as a last resort, uh, yeah, you know, I, I said, well, let me look in the phone books. <laughs> and I found him, I found a Robert Hadjadge in a New York phone book. I says, all right, what's the chance? So I called it, this very elderly man answered, and it turned out to be the same guy. Uh, 
It was remarkable. I mean, it just you couldn't have fabricated a better story. <laughs> uh, you know, so I, I on my next trip back home, I went to visit with him and told him I want to preserve the film. And, you know, this was a guy that had bought the rights around 1953 and uh you know, he just sort of let the film go. Uh, he sold it to television pretty early, I think around 1956. It was only the second Abbott and Costello film to ever get sold to television. Uh, trivia, who, uh, who knows the first, actually? Uh, Ron, do you, do you know was that? It, uh, was it Pardon My Sarong? That's right. Oh, this guy's good. <laughs> We didn't yeah. plan this either. No. Uh, very well. <laughs> All right, Ron, you got a large coffee uh, next time. But that so, was also uh, because it was an independent production too, but released through Universal. So, but go ahead, yes, go back. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Um, so you know, he he didn't do anything with the film, including letting the copyright lapse in 1977, I think. So uh, anyway, he gave me access to the material. Uh, went in. I used the. Uh, nitrate fine grain master positive to do a scan to standard definition analog one inch tape. We released a laser distro image entertainment and it did very well. It was awarded best uh, supplemental disc of the year by video magazine uh, the following year. And, uh, you know, I never thought I would get a chance to revisit it. And here we are 32 years later and uh, we've now launched this Kickstarter, which you know, it, it to say it has surprised us would be an understatement because we met our initial goal of seventy five hundred dollars in twenty nine hours, and I was like, "Holy smokes!" Uh, that came out of left field. Uh, you know, so I had to scramble quickly to get some stretch goals up and and everything. But you know, it's is an overwhelmingly successful Kickstarter campaign, and thanks to all the very generous backers, we're going to be able to do 4K scans of all the surviving nitrate elements, and that includes five reels of picture negative and the complete fine grain, and uh, we'll have a 4K digital restoration master of this film that's you know going to look as good or better than it looked in 1949, so it's, it's really cool. Ron, how would you rate this film in terms of... Uh you know, their, their overall productions. Uh, is it worth all this trouble, I guess, is the question I'm kind of asking. Well, anything is that's a snapshot of Hollywood history is worth preserving, I think. And uh, this is a, an interesting kind of thing where you get to see uh, two of the three stooges in there with Abbott and Costello, working with Abbott and Costello. You get to see Clyde Beatty and Frank Buck, who were in, incredibly popular uh figures in the 1930s and 40s uh, for their exploits as Buck being a, an explorer and an animal tr uh, hunter and uh, Beatty as a trainer. And uh, and then you get to see these two behemoths, the the, ba the Bear brothers who were both each uh, world champions at one point or another in their careers as boxers. So it's a, really eclectic cast you know in this movie and of course uh, Besser and uh, Hillary wound up working with Abbott and Costello in the in the TV series um in terms of like 
where does the film rate in the Abbott and Costello uh, pantheon? I think it's a somewhere in the middle. I don't think it's one, certainly not one of their best. It's not one of their worst. But it's you know to to be able to see them in an independent production where they kind of have carte blanche to do what they want. I mean, you kind of see, sense that in the uh, in some of the footage, you know, where they're making stuff up as they go along. It's it's very loose. It's a lot looser, I think, than the Universal work. Yeah, I was watching just a. a- bit of it because of course i'm saving myself for when i get my dvd from being a supporter of it but uh yeah it, it kind of reminded me of a night in casablanca a little partly because it's it's what well, it's the same year i think but also there just seemed to be that sort of you know they're like breathing more easily they don't you, they don't seem to have the the studio over their neck quite so much yeah i think i think that's true too also you know this film is legendary for the behind the scenes antics more so than any other film i think you know because you have them uh throwing pies and there are a lot of stills with people with pie crust on and you know pie fillings on their faces uh and they're throwing pies they're having practical jokes and it's also causing the film to run over because they're just having a great time norman abbott is the dialogue director of betty abbott uh these are bud abbott's uh, nephew and niece uh, betty abbott is the script supervisor as she's been on uh, several of the films at this point she would go on to work with uh, Blake Edwards who I believe according to some of the stories was a visitor to the set uh, many times so um, you know this just uh, they're surrounding themselves with their friends and family um, so I think they're having a great time making this movie and some of it comes through in, in some of the uh, some of the work you mentioned Huntington Hartford and that's really a kind of an interesting uh, sidelight to this thing he was the uh, pampered heir to the A and P grocery chain fortune. He never worked a day in his life in the in the in the company. He inherited about a hundred million, and he blew about ninety of it. Uh, and uh, he, I guess, he had pretensions of uh, becoming uh, Howard Hughes in terms of producing movies. He didn't get to do that many of them, and uh, wound up. Uh, I believe he uh, was the guy who he bought. Uh, a place called Hog Island in the Caribbean and renamed it Paradise Island. And, uh, his, and uh, of course, mar- you know, a marketing name, branding is everything, right? So he yeah. named it Paradise Island. And uh, he, uh, that uh, is, uh, was, became the location for a couple of Bond movies, including the last Casino Royale was actually shot in uh, the hotel that Huntington Hartford built. Of course, many, he lost it many, you know, many times over. And it was taken up by somebody else. But anyway, he uh, very colorful guy. We're going to talk about him in the uh, in the in the commentary track a little bit. So, well, Bob. So the Kickstarter runs through December thirtieth. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. As you say, it's already met its goal. It met its goal within a day. Um, but why should people be part of this now? Well, anything that comes in above and beyond what our initial goal is, is only going to help us do better work on the final restoration, you know, additional cleanup, uh, and restoration work. Uh, you know, we've already announced and met, uh, two stretch goals. Uh, so there's going to be some really, really cool extras that are going to be on the disc, uh, one is a live television appearance from 1953. The other is the uh, Abbott and Costello comic book in 3D that we'll be restoring. Uh, and, you know, hey, even for a $10 uh, pledge, you're going to get your name in the restoration credits. So uh, how many opportunities do you have to see your name on an Abbott and Costello movie? <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, 
I think that's a kind of a cool extra. And, uh, you know, the more the more we can do with this, uh, the better our chances are going to be moving forward of licensing and securing additional films for restoration, both 3D and, you know, Abbott and Costello related. So, uh, you know, keep you, you keep plugging it. I, I would I would love to see us, uh, you know, continue to do well. There's also, uh, if I'm not mistaken, you're going to have a still uh, gallery as well in there from, from stills of the movie. And um, I'm doing the commentary track. And you're also going to have outtakes, right? Yeah, we'll have the outtake reel. Uh, we're, uh, Ron's, you know, since we wrote, uh, co-wrote our book, Abbott and Castell in Hollywood, way back in 91, uh, Ron has continued to do research into their career and has uncovered just an incredible amount of information uh, about the film that n- nobody knows about. So, you know, the commentary track, uh, I'm really looking forward to, and I, I know it's going to be a, a great plus. Uh, and a few other things. Uh, we're working on uh, uh, securing a, uh, an interview that Lou did in 1940 with Max Bear following a, a boxing match. Uh, we've got a Clyde Beatty uh, Castle Films short that'll be in the set to kind of give you a little little look into his career and popularity. And uh, a stretch goal that we hope to launch uh, tomorrow, uh, which will be a, a radio show from 1948 where Bud and Lou go to Africa to claim a diamond. <laughs> and it's, uh, you know, one of those things where it was a few months before they started working on the script and, you know, maybe that show gave some writers the idea to develop a screenplay on that scenario. So I think it's going to be a great package all around. Are there other um, of their independent uh, sort of orphan productions like this that you see a chance to bring out as well? Well, yeah, the one everybody asks about is Jack and the Beanstalk. And yeah, uh, I can only say right now that I've been working on that for about six months uh, but there's nothing definite yet. Uh, it's it's also a, a public domain film, but uh, uh, it's in color. And I, I can tell you that the color elements do not survive. The, the camera negative is gone. The color separations are gone. This was done in three color cine colors. So you had red, blue, and yellow separations, and they are completely lost. Uh, so it's, it's a completely different animal from Africa Screams in terms of what material there there are to work with but uh i'm digging and i'm digging deep so (laughs) you know wish me luck (laughs) (laughs) all right well good luck thank you the noose hangs high was released on uh, blu-ray uh two years ago bob i want to say right yeah about that uh in fact uh classic flicks who did uh new scans on the 35 millimeter nitrate for noose hangs high and released it on DVD and Blu-ray. Uh, they're going to be handling our Africa Screams release, and uh, really looking forward to it. They're a great company, and they do quality work. And uh, you know, I think it's a perfect fit for this kind of uh, release. <laughs> Links for the Kickstarter and for the Abbott and Costello fan club will be in the show post at nitrateville.com.
That's music for The Charge at Feather River, a 1953 western with Guy Madison. Maybe not a major western, though it is in 3D, but at least it had a major composer scoring it, the legendary Max Steiner. In fact, do I hear a little of King Kong's title theme in it? I think so. Shining a light on Steiner's work in the Western genre is the purpose of a new three-CD box set, Saddles, Sagebrush, and Steiner Western Scores of Max Steiner, containing original recordings from the Warner Brothers studio. Nitrateville member Ray Faola co-produced the set, as he has many previous sets of classic film music. I spoke with him in Ellenville, New York. You know, one thing I was wondering, uh, I started looking you up a little, and I realized you're just one of those guys who's in a lot of things. I so, have my fingers in many pies, yes. yes. So yeah, tell me, I mean, how would you describe yourself? I, I, I guess I would call myself a, a, a jack of many trades. Um, I started out as a, uh, as a professional actor and am continuing as a professional actor at the same time, just to ensure that my family was well fed. I had a 40 year career as an executive at the CBS television network. I just, I just retired at the end of May. Uh, then about 20 years ago, I got into, uh, doing soundtrack restoration and um, also, you know, pretty much most of my life, I've been a, uh, a, a film collector and uh, have put together a pretty, pretty extensive uh, collection of 16 millimeter films. And so, you know, it's different things. Um, they're all kind of pseudo interrelated, not so much the CBS stuff, um, although part of my work at CBS was maintaining the complete broadcast history of, of the company going back to the beginning of radio. Um, but that was, you know, it was obviously very specific to the network. Well, uh, let's talk about this uh, Max Steiner collection that you put out. Um, yes. I, I have to admit, I don't think Western when I think Max Steiner. I ah. mean, did did many things from King Kong to Betty Davis movies to, of course, Gone with the Wind. But yeah, tell me about the, the Western side of Max Steiner's career as a film composer. Well, um Max got to Warner Brothers in 1937, and that first year at Warner's, he scored a film. It was actually released in 38, called Gold is Where You Find It, uh, which was a Technicolor, pretty big-budget film with Olivia de Havilland and George Brent and Claude Rains. And um, uh, it was a very exciting film, and uh, it I guess you could call it sort of a northwestern it's but uh it's it's in the in the western oeuvre so that was really his first of many many westerns that he scored at uh, at warner brothers uh from 1937 right up until almost the end one of his last scores was a distant trumpet with troy donahue <laughs> so uh his scores were they were pretty standard as far as is his approach. They were either, you know, prairie operas or they were cavalry pictures. Um, he did one that was, I guess you could call it a Western noir called Pursued, which was with uh, Robert Mitchum and Teresa Wright. A really 
terrific film and the and the score had some really interesting you know dark moments to it we released that one quite a few years ago actually yeah i love that one i mean it's it's one of those one of those noirs that's that's heavy on freudianism yeah and uh you know really has this kind of obsessive dark mood that's that's rare even in noir it's not that common but it's uh it's well, certainly any not. movie with judith anderson in it is going to have some obsessive dark moods in it <laughs> true true so this so this this latest box that we just released which is called saddles sagebrush and steiner uh it's a three disc set which covers um eight scores some of them are complete some of them are, uh, you know, merely a few sequences. It's basically everything that survives musically from these films. All of the Steiner projects that we've released over the past 20 years have uh, used materials from the Max Steiner collection at Brigham Young University. These were, uh, this collection is made up of acetate discs that Steiner himself retained in his private library. And what these discs were, just for those who don't know, is when the orchestra would record the music for a picture on the studio, on, on the stage at Warner Brothers or wherever, the music would be recorded onto optical film for your optical soundtrack. Of course, that film has to be developed before it can be heard or played through an optical reader. So simultaneously to the optical film being uh, photographed, they record a, uh, an acetate disc on the spot so that it can be used for immediate playback so that the composer or the musical director can listen to the cue they just recorded and can decide whether or not uh, it's acceptable for use you know, in the picture. Interesting. That's kind of like video assist many years before that came into being. That's exactly what it is. And of course you couldn't do that with the, with the uh, photographic side of films, but with music, you at least were able to uh, check uh, your musical score uh, right on the spot, which was very important because music was probably the most expensive aspect of picture making back in those days because of the you know the uh what they had to pay the musicians so the scoring sessions were limited to very short periods um and uh and they were able to as i say check the recordings on the spot so in any case steiner had amassed hundreds and hundreds of discs over the years from his scores now some of them the scores were complete Others, they were piecemeal. Some you might not have, you know, an end title, although you'd have the entire rest of the score. And then there'd be others like The Big Sleep, which unfortunately, absolutely nothing survives. So that's, it's, it's really a title by title, case by case basis as to what may or might, may not survive uh, from a film's score. Which also means it's a picture of how they recorded these things, because if they're sitting there just playing, you know, sort of creeping down a hallway music for a bit, and you've got a whole disc of that, then you know how they were cutting up the picture into pieces to record the score. Yes, and and also um, you find in going through the discs sequentially, that the score would not be recorded chronologically. The score would be recorded in groups of cues 
that required the same number of musicians for those particular sessions. So if you had if you had like six cues where you only needed 12 players for whatever reason, maybe there was all source music, you know, stuff that was being played by the cantina in the by the band in the cantina or whatever. Uh, you'd record all of those cues in one session or in one day or one two day session. And then where you needed 60 or 70 pieces, then you'd, you know, so that you'd spend the least amount of money uh, in grouping your musicians. So consequently, the uh, the acetate discs, the discs were not in chronological order as they would appear in the film. So then my job, and nor were they identified by slate at Warner Brothers. Now, when Steiner recorded on the Goldwyn stage, either for Selznick or for, you know, another United Artist uh, uh, um, company, they would properly slate the cues, real one part two, real two part two, et cetera, et cetera. At Warner Brothers, they didn't do that. All of the slating was done um, on paper. So when we get the discs, uh, it's, uh, it's rather haphazard as to whether or not they may be hand-marked real one part four, real six part eight. So very often when I would restore the uh, the sound on the discs and then put them together in symphonic fashion, always chronologically as they appear in the score. I have to go through every cue in the film one by one to just to sort of assemble uh, where the cue goes. And then you have times where there might be a piece of music that was never used in the film. And you have to sort of use detective work in trying to figure out where that cue was supposed to go. Sometimes you can you can figure that out based on the uh, motif material that's used in the composition. Um, other times you may have a piece of music that's only partially used in the film. For instance, in Virginia City, uh, there's a scene with uh, Madeline, not Madeline Carroll, uh, Miriam Hopkins, and Randolph Scott, where they're talking about various things in his office, and Steiner basically scored that entire sequence. Well, when they got to the final edit, they dipped most of that music out. It was only a little bit in the beginning, and then the scene played without music, and then toward the end of the scene, they brought up the music again. So there are, you know, lots of different quirks involved with, uh, you know, presenting, presenting these scores as they were initially composed and originally intended. Now, what was the condition of these acetates? Oh, it's all over the map. Um, with the stuff from the uh, stuff like Virginia City and Santa Fe Trail, those discs were in pretty much immaculate condition. In fact, almost, we try as best as possible when we uh, release material commercially. We try to use scores that survive in really good condition because there are a lot of them that survived very poorly. I will say that there were some that we released, such as the Three Musketeers from 1935. Uh, the, those were done on aluminum discs and the sound quality was what we call archival <laughs> yeah. where you, you're listening for the music. You're not listening for, you know, for pristine clarity on a score like the letter, which is one of Steiner's real masterpieces. 
we were fortunate in that there was some optical film soundtrack that survived at Warner Brothers. So we had a combination of various degrees of uh, of condition with respect to Max, Max's acetates, but then we had beautiful condition material that Warner's had in uh, it from in tapes that were made from optical film. So that was a case where we had some, you know, it was sort of half and half as to the condition. But uh, for the most part, we really try to use uh, material that is, you know, really survived well so that the listener doesn't have to sort of struggle through enjoying a score. And I have to say that the sound, uh, I mean, obviously there were pops and clicks and, you know, different you know, imperfections on these discs, but that's, that's my first job. The first thing I tackle is the condition of the, uh, of the audio from the, from the discs and clean up all of those, you know, the, all of that damage and then assemble the score symphonically. So there's about, uh, uh, looks like about eight or nine films, uh, represented across the whole set. Some pretty well known like Santa Fe trail, um, but, uh, I don't know, tell me, tell me a score that you think is kind of a discovery that that's a little bit, uh, unknown and underappreciated. Well, I, I think probably the gem on this, uh, on this set would be Rocky Mountain, which was a 1950 release. Uh, it was directed by William Keeley, who was kind of like the alter ego for Curtiz at Warner brothers. Um, and, uh, it was the last, uh, film that Steiner scored for Errol Flynn. I don't think I'll giving anything away when, when I say that Flynn does not survive the, you know, survive the final attack. (laughs) Um, but the score and the, the approach, it's, uh, it's, it's very melancholy for a Western, and um, Steiner's orchestral palette isn't uh, in it's it's not quite as brash as it would have as it might have been a few years ago. And part of that is in answer to the the story and the and the setting. But it's really a it's really a beautiful work. And um, I, I think people will really respond to that when they when they listen to that, especially since it's it's complete from stem to stern. So it's it's really enjoyable to listen to. One thing I think about Warner, I mean, as much as I love those films, as much as I love, you know, Steiner and Korngold and everybody's work, there's a little bit of a sameness in terms of everything is just very up and big and peppy. And it's interesting when when those guys get to do something else uh, that you know that isn't isn't just the big brash themes for heroic Errol Flynn or whomever. Yeah, well, I'll tell you something that that pretty much came from on high. Jack Warner was a big proponent of uh, lush and aggressive scoring. He you know he told Steiner at one point he's he, Max would said you know, Jack, how much music do you want in this picture? And Jack said, Max, for my money, you can start on the main title and go right through to the end. Yeah. <laughs> Steiner didn't, he rarely did that, of course. The spotting of a, of a film score is probably the most important thing that a, a composer does. But uh, Warner himself was very much a proponent for aggressive scoring. So that's why, you know, even the second tier guys like Adolf Deutsch and Heinz Reimheld, um, and eventually, and eventually when Franz Waxman got there, they all took that same 
sort of Mondo approach to, uh, you know, just telling the audience, this is a Warner Brothers picture and we're not going to let you forget it. And which, you know, is, is absolutely true. I mean, you, you hear two notes and you know what studio it's coming from. So. Well, that's partially because Steiner wrote the fanfare that, right. <laughs> that Warner's used for, you know, for 20 uh, odd years. So, but yeah, if you look at Steiner did like a, um, uh, a loan out to uh, the Hakeem brothers in 1949 for a film that was going to be called Twilight. It was originally really, it was eventually released as without honor and it's much more serene. It's a, it's a, it's a mystery. It's a, mur- a picture about a murder, but it's got this Latin rhythm going for it. And it takes place in a, you know, in a small house near an orange grove in, in California. It's a, and it's a totally different sound than, you know, uh, audiences were used to hearing from Steiner at Warner Brothers. Now, there's one bonus track on here that I just have to ask you about because it's titled <laughs> Max Complains About the Delicatessen. Well, that's that's exactly what happens. He's he's about to start up the orchestra and you just hear him saying, oh, oh my. Oh, I'm not going to go to that delicatessen again. <laughs> you know, the, the nice thing about, uh, about uh, the fact that we were limited in the number of scores we were able to finally use on this set was it actually gave us time to include some bonus tracks of Max working with the orchestra. So you get to hear alternate uh, alternate recordings of some of the cues. Um, and, you know, sometimes, you know, when the either the orchestra breaks down or Steiner doesn't hit a cue properly and his conducting or, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, I think the first bonus track is Virginia City. And, you know, they just start up and they don't get very far and just, Steiner yells, Jesus, you're ahead of me. You know, so it's, it's fun to listen to this, to, to Max working with the orchestra. So you've done several of these. This is the Western one. Uh, what do you think the next one will be? Or do you still, are you pretty run, pretty well run through the material yet? Oh my gosh. No, there is a load of material to be, uh, to be plundered. Uh, we are at a transition point, however, because the fellow who spearheaded this series at Brigham Young University, James Dark, uh, who is in fact descended from Joan of Arc. No, no kidding. Uh, he just retired from uh, BYU. So there's a new team there who's now in charge at the Harold B. Lee Library. Um, they're very much Steiner proponents. We just had a Max Steiner symposium out at Brigham Young uh, last month, which was very successful. And uh, I'm sure once we sort of work out the new logistics, uh, we hopefully will be able to you know, press on. But um, when you when you get the set and you'll read uh, Jim's, you know, his sort of farewell to, you know, to this project. So it's we're definitely in a bit of a holding pattern just until we uh, we reconnoiter, as Oliver Hardy would say. (laughs) And are there other composers for whom this sort of thing survives or is this pretty much unique to Steiner? Oh no, uh, we've done uh, we've done a load of albums of this. Now this isn't with BYU. This is uh, Screen Archives and my company just working together. We've done a load of scores by Dmitri Tiomkin, 
uh, we did DOA, we did Angel on My Shoulder, we did Cyrano de Bergerac, we did High Noon, uh, which is probably one of the best albums we did. We did a load of scores by Alfred Newman from 20, we licensed from 20th Century Fox. Um, and that was wonderful because Fox had uh, beautiful tapes, pr preservation tapes of the original optical tracks. So the Fox material that we released, we re released a full stereo recording of Captain from Castile, which was recorded in 1947, the complete score in stereo. Uh, I mean, we really did some great things with Fox. So, you know, I, I've done about, uh, I guess, about 120 albums at this point. Wow. Um, and I've also done work for hire for companies like Monstrous Movie Music for David Schechter. Um, you know, he released a lot of the Paul Sautel and Bert Schefter stuff. We recently did Rocket Ship XM and Kronos and a bunch of other things. Um, I did a couple of albums for Rhino, uh, the King Kong album that I did that was actually for Rhino. And that was really terrific because in the process of putting that album together, you know, Steiner was only able to save 12 minutes of music from King Kong from the original recordings. Hmm. And that's the music that we've known for years and years and years. Well, when I started working on the King Kong album, I discovered a 35 millimeter reel of audio tracks that were alternate takes from RKO from 1933. And there were some cues from Little Women there, which we were able to use eventually. There was the main title to The Monkey's Paw, <laughs> uh, which, as you know, has only recently resurfaced as a film, uh, albeit in French. But here was the complete original main title recording. And there was about uh, 12 additional minutes from King Kong. So I was able to put together a 24-minute suite from King Kong for the Rhino album, which then, to balance, to fill out the album, I did sort of a, I guess what you'd call a, a Lux Radio Theater version of, <laughs> of the complete soundtrack. I condensed the soundtrack to a an audio listening uh, version of it. So yeah, so it's it's been a lot of fun over the last 20 years, um, uh, you know, putting these things out and you know, preserving the music. That's the most important thing is, is getting it into digital form, being able to, you know, clean it up as best as possible. I never, I never do, you know, uh, you know, over cleaning. Um, there's, there's noise that's inherent to some recordings. Then there's what I call topsoil, which is the, the noise that gets added on through years of use or misuse. It's the topsoil that I try to, you know, minimize as best as possible, but always retaining the original ambience of the original recording, because that's where you find, and that's where you hear all the extensive instrumentation and everything. If you, if you, if you sucker the sound too much, it just, it, 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 you just lose so much of the of the ambience. That's unfortunately what I find happens with so many uh, new recordings, you know, releases on Blu-ray and DVD is the audio engineers try to match the purity of the visual by purifying the sound. 
Well, I got news for you. Sound wasn't so pure back in 1945. And when you take out, you know, whatever was inherent in those original Western electric recordings, you're also taking out a lot of the original ambience of the sound and a lot of the expansion of the sound. So, but that's just, that's just me. <laughs> it's one of my, one of my pet peeves that I have to live with, which is why I keep, which is why I keep my film collection because my film collection is pristine and no one can do anything to it. One of the reasons why I love collecting film is it's really archeology span in many ways because yeah. every film print, is like a fingerprint. No two are alike. Even if you have two films that come out of the printer, you know, one after the other, there's going to be something different about one as opposed to the other. And of course, you know, when you get, you know, the difference from a film struck by NTA to a film struck by Paramount who, you know, took over the distribution and you've got 20 years in between and different negatives, et cetera, et cetera. You know, one film, one film print of the same film can be radically different from, from the other. That's music from 1950's Rocky Mountain by Max Steiner. The link to order Saddles, Sagebrush, and Steiner Western Scores of Max Steiner from Screen Archives Entertainment is in the show post at nitrateville.com. We talked about George Melies and Lillian Gish and Ernie Kovacs. Iris Berry, Cinerama, and how restoring Detour cost a hundred times what it cost to make it. The San Francisco Silent Film Festival, the TCM Film Festival, and playing the organ at Chicago's Music Box. That's been this year at Nitrateville Radio, and if you want to keep us going next year, do us one favor. Go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and a review. Many people listening now do so because they discovered Nitrateville Radio at iTunes or Apple Podcasts because of the good reviews and perfect five-star average that we have there. So help us make more fans like you. Leave us that rating and that review. Thanks, and I hope you're looking forward to next year as much as I am. And now, a message from the 2000s. A melody is like sex. I so get that. But then as you get to know the person, that's the lyrics, their story, Goodbye. who they are underneath. That's Drew Barrymore in the 2007 rom-com Music and Lyrics with Hugh Grant. Drew Barrymore's father was John Drew Barrymore, and his father was the legendary romantic idol John Barrymore, brother of Lionel and Ethel and their father was an idol of the stage, Maurice Barrymore. 
Not to dwell on Drew Barrymore, she's a little after Nitrateville's time, but she has another lineage, with another Maurice at the top of it. John Barrymore married the silent beauty Dolores Costello, and her father was perhaps the first true movie star, Maurice Costello. The story of the Costellos, and their connection, or maybe collision, with the Barrymores, is the subject of a new multi-person biography, Film's First Family, The Untold Story of the Costellos, from the University Press of Kentucky. I spoke to author Terry Chester Shulman at his home in Venice, California. Your book has the best cover of a movie book. Uh, isn't that a great cover? You know, uh, me being, you know, essentially kind of kind of superficial and and, <laughs> and, and, and trivial, uh, that was so important to me. Yeah. And I even designed a couple of covers, which were, were kind of awful in comparison. And, they, <laughs> and the press came up with this marvelous cover. And I was just so amazed and happy. Well, I just really like that they they went with the period that Maurice belongs to. And not yeah. and didn't just do Art Deco. And it's such a great pastiche yeah. of a Victorian era book cover. So, Well, you know, I kind of worry that, you know, um, readers will think that it takes place in you know, entirely in the 19th century, you know, where, where it's, it's actually this kind of saga, this, this sure. sweeping tale that takes you through a whole century, almost exactly starting in 1877 when Maurice Costello was born to Dolores Costello's death in 1979. The most interesting thing, first of all, is, I mean, no first is ever true. You can always argue with any first in movie history, but you make a very good case for... Oh, uh, you think so, huh? <laughs> I, uh, go ahead. <laughs> for Maurice Costello being the first real movie star. So tell me what that case is. Right. Well, the case is is that he was, this is, you know, Photoplay called him the first recognized movie star. This is how he was remembered. And also numerically, you can begin the definition with uh, actors being known by by name, because you can't say, oh, I love this person and, and you know, not know their name because uh, identity is important. So in 1910, in, in March of 1910, the first three big stars of, of the time um, began to be identified by the studios. Uh, the first was Florence Lawrence, the second was Florence Turner, and the third was Maurice Costello, who came along a little later. But they were all, they, they were all kind of outed name-wise um, around the same time. But Maurice Costello, uh, according to the, the first uh, popularity poll, um, was really the first star who, who garnered this incredible uh, popularity. Uh, and popularity, um, numerically, I think is important because Florence Lawrence and Florence Turner together polled uh, a quarter of the number of votes that Maurice got. And he was also the first to galvanize um, this kind of romantic uh, notion of a star, uh, particularly with his, the, the female uh, uh, movie-going uh, contingent. And just, you know, starting in 1907, we can really start to see that he emerged as the, the first great star. And, and, and also, it's not just a quantitative thing. He, um, he made such an extraordinary contribution to uh, the screen actor and screen acting, as I go into uh, really exhaustively in the book of, of all of his, his innovations and accomplishments as, as the first really great movie star. Well, I think the other thing that's important is that he didn't come to the movies with any fame. He was a workaday right. actor, uh, yep. you know, had a steady 
roll of or you know steady roster of credits for many years in various touring mm-hmm. companies him and a million other guys it wasn't the great stage actor maurice costello is now appearing in you know in our films that's it, right although that's how he was cooked up you know um later on um he was he was you know they called him a broadway star which he wasn't they you know they they um you know referred to him as, as having great fame which he didn't he was really you know kind of in, in a in a kind of a downward spiral as an actor because you know um the that level of theater was being supplanted by movies um so he was aging out of a profession that was you know itself aging out and why did he choose to go into the movies and and when that was such a wise time to do well that you know that's that's another thing that sets him apart is because um it was it was so frowned upon and it was it was really thought of as as kind of being like prostitution for an actor <laughs> appearing in movies. Um, and so, to his credit, he saw what what others uh, were as yet unable to see is that movies were there to stay, and they were really going to become much much bigger and, and more prestigious and more important um than they were so we have to also give him credit for that and that was part of it the other part of it is that his wife that his wife may was making his life so miserable because he was because he wasn't bringing in enough money that i think just to, to kind of keep peace in the family he he kind of buckled and decided to give it a shot all right, so tell me a little bit about, I mean, I, I went and looked at uh, a couple of films that I could find on YouTube, but tell me what was, you know, what was his persona? Why did people respond to him so much in that early time? And what do you think he brought to movie acting? Well, he brought uh, really a, a natural talent. And if, I don't know what films you saw, but available films on, on YouTube, uh, I, I think the best um, is a, a one real uh, one reeler called the picture idol in which he plays himself and it really does showcase his his great natural acting skill and the fact that he really did introduce to the best of my knowledge the first um school of screen acting technique which he he named he called it the slow motion style of acting and you know there was of course this conspiracy of speed between the cameraman and the projectionist then and when he looked at himself on screen he was uh, appalled so he uh, brought to the vinograph company this this um method in which they physically slowed down their movements to really compensate for that so they came out um and you know looking looking more like natural movements and this is, is so in evidence in the picture idol which really is in almost every respect a modern film there's nothing none of the staginess or exaggerated mannerisms or or speeded upness of of movies that that we associate with silent movies even a decade later it's really an extraordinary uh little little film and um it it really showcases or kind of features him at at the top of his game at the height of his popularity we we get to see what a a really fine actor he was and how he, he had had been honed by the stage um, there's an eating scene, one of the great eating scenes. I don't know if this is the one that you saw. Um, really, in, in all of uh, if, of film, I think it's just hilarious, and it's done with with such skill 
and um, really understated comedy. Well, I think it's interesting. I mean, I immediately thought as you're describing him as slowing things down, which is that's what any comedian who sort of broke out of the frenzy of slapstick did. You know, they, right. they slowed right. down, they did something more delicate than just running around and waving their hands above their head and made you look at them. That's Chaplin, that's Keaton later, sure. who's such a minimalist. Sure. It's where Arbuckle was going. And it's interesting, I guess it was just in general how you emerged from the mob was you took the time to give the audience a reason to look at you. Yes, absolutely. Yes. And he did that. Um, and, you know, fortunately, a lot of his films were uh, ended up in, in at the I Institute I, in the Netherlands. I, I believe yeah, it is. Yeah. And uh, they're in, in one, most of them are in really excellent states of, of preservation, um, you know, minus the the um, the subtitles, which, you know, are, are in uh, what in Danish, Dutch. Swedish, whatever Dutch, they are. Yeah. There really are some marvelous examples, surviving examples of, of Maurice Costello, uh, fortunately. All right. So his his career as a star is actually shockingly brief, but I suppose that's not atypical of that time, which is basically right, about right. five years there from what, like 19? Pretty much, yes. As a name star from 1910 until he began to fade um, late in 1914, I, I guess more like like four years, but he hung on through through much of 1915. Um, yeah, he was you know there was this avalanche of of new of new actors who were were coming into the profession. I think 1912 is a really significant year in that for one thing, it's the first year at least that I was able to find where major popularity polls were there to really gauge just how popular and and well received actors were. And of course, he won that year by by this huge landslide. Um, but uh, you know how long he would have hung on. He was also a director, and I argue probably the first uh, you know known actor director. Yeah. Um, mostly because he was so well known as an an actor, and then when he began to direct, he became well known as both. Um, so I mean, there's no reason to think that he would not have have lasted longer. Had he not caused the first major film scandal um, in 1913, where he throttled his 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 wife May Costello in this kind of alcohol fueled uh, frenzy that uh, appeared in, in the Brooklyn Eagle and then kind of spread out uh, in other newspapers, and that was kind of the beginning of the end. Yeah, I mean it's interesting that your book becomes an ongoing chronicle of alcoholism, Irishness, <laughs> yeah. and a certain amount of domestic violence. Yes. And and then when they combined with the Barrymores, this this perfect storm became a typhoon, really, of of uh, really alcoholic uh, behavior and uh, all, all these really and terrible spending incidents. money you didn't have on real estate too. I noticed was a recurring theme. Yeah, that's true. Well, well, well. John Barrymore did that. That was one of Dolores's major complaints about him is is is, is how uh, that bad and irresponsible uh, what a spender or what a, a spender rather he was, and that was also what Maurice Costello did. You know, as he was fading out, he was having this you know this terrible decrease you know he's kind of free falling in popularity yet he buys this this enormous estate um on long island which was you know 
kind of ended up being a complete disaster because as Elaine says, they literally starved there. You know, yeah. they, they were, so he was, you know, he took all the furniture on this, this huge trip to try and, and, uh, you know, sell pawn, uh, scrape up any, any money that they could so they could stay there, which they managed to do until the early twenties. Hmm. So his family was May and then two daughters, uh, yes. one of whom at least is well-known to yes. old, old movie fans, Dolores Costello, also another one named Helene. Correct. Um, you know, uh, Helene, though she is not well-known, um, just has this enormous uh, claim to fame, which is that she was the first star of an all-talking picture, The Lights of New York. 1928. And, you know, she kind of, a lot of that was just luck. She just happened to be there. Um, but still it's, it's, it's quite a milestone. Yeah. So tell me about, uh, so he's, he's estranged from the family to varying degrees during this decade after his stardom fades. Uh, yes. and they decide, you know, God forbid you should just get a normal job. Why not go to Hollywood and, and try to become stars too. Um, yeah, which I guess, you know, at least they have the contacts for that, if nothing else. So, yes. And he did uh, continue, you know, he had a, not a resurgence of his career, but he was getting secondary parts, um, on and off really up until they all came out to Hollywood in 19, uh, 1925. John Barrymore's entry into the family destroyed it, but they were, you know, they were on a crash course uh, <laughs> long, be long before that. Um, throughout the uh, Dolores and Helene's upbringing, uh, the parents fought, and and even though um, Maurice was kind of the one who got arrested and charged, and who who suffered uh, the stigma of, of uh, you know, domestic violence may also gave as good as she got. And there are several accounts of this. Um, she was not to be trifled with, and she was not afraid of him, uh, as, as their letters clearly show, because she's always, you know, threatening and demanding and, and, uh, kind of blackmailing him into, <laughs> into doing uh, the things that she needed most of most, which mostly were bringing in more money, um, so that they could survive. So Dolores is wooed for a number of years, I guess, really, by John Barrymore, who, it's worth noting, was yeah. five years younger than her father. So, I mean, talk about someone, uh -huh. you know, marrying not just yeah. her father, but someone who fits him in nearly every profile, you know, also Absolutely. a matinee idol, also a terrible drunk, I know. you know, everything. I know. Yeah, well, Dolores had a, a lot, you know, going on um, subconsciously because um, I don't I don't think she really realized that she was doing that. But that is, in, in fact, you know what she was doing. Um, also, Jack was the same age as her mother. They, they were yeah. the exact same same age. So, yeah, as you say, the sim similarities were uncanny. Their relationship doesn't really last that long once they're married and gets messier and messier. Yeah. There's an interesting similarity, uh, like like many alcoholics, he he wasn't just you know constantly drinking. He went through periods of relative sobriety and sometimes you know complete sobriety. He had a, a gastric hemorrhage and right before 
um, the making of the Svengali, and that kind of prevented him from drinking. And not coincidentally, his performance in Svengali is is astonishingly lucid and brilliant. In in the last scene, he uh, or the, right before the end, he has this wonderful confrontation, I think, with Marion March, and tears literally spring out of his eyes. He's just fantastic in in, in that role. Um, you know, in great part because he was he was pretty sober. And, you know, conversely, when he starts drinking um, again, his performances get kind of wooden and, and, you know, kind of a bit affected. But so he went, you know, he had his ups and downs and uh, his family and, and Dolores in particular, you know, just had to kind of roll with the punches. Yeah, I mean, that's the sense I get just reading this. It's just so much drama in these people's lives i mean i shouldn't well laugh these two families it. you know these two families were you know it was just high drama you know all the time and when they came together it was just it was like a like this 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 epic collision <laughs> yeah and then helene the the more obscure helene winds mm-hmm. up marrying lowell sherman which if that isn't yes. also marrying john barrymore <laughs> I, I don't know, know what would be i know i know well you know they had this you know when they were in their formative years they had this this glamorous father maurice uh, costello uh, who was you know extremely magnetic and so maybe that kind of imprinted on them and they were kind of uh, kind of uh, searching for a a, uh, a father figure um right who matched know, for, the model for the rest of their life <laughs> yeah 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 well yeah and and the the Costello Sherman marriage also came to a pretty scandalous end yes um you know i i kind of i, I kind of suggest that it was really the first kind of modern um, messy Hollywood divorce. There was Chaplin before that, but that was more like a rape trial, I think, yeah. in a lot of ways. This was just a lot of, you know, typical mud slinging and, you know, spurious accusations, uh, at, uh, particularly from him to her. But he was, he was, you know, just so cruel um, in in the way that he went about it. Uh, the, the, it wasn't really about the money because the money had, I think it was $30,000 had already been arranged, but he just wanted to draw blood and, you know, publicly humiliate her, which, which he did. And in his defense, I suppose she was drinking quite heavily and she wasn't easy to be with either. Well, let's talk about the, the stardom of the Costello sisters, um, particularly Dolores. I mean, she was, she was a pretty major star, you know, ethereally, ethereally. Yeah. I don't know how to say that. Uh, she was quite beautiful. Uh, (laughs) you know, her, her sister called her probably the most beautiful woman ever to appear in movies. And, you know, Which that's subjective, a, You of can course, make a reasonable case, yeah. Certainly, certainly. So, yeah, tell me about uh, her career and, and Helene's career. Um, well, let's see. Uh, you know, Helene, interestingly, never really managed to, to get off, off the ground. Uh, a lot of it was, was bad luck. She, she became, she started to, to develop the tubercular um, episodes that, you know, would kind of, really make her life so so miserable um and really change the course of her life uh, this is in in the late 20s she began to get these terrible colds and began to develop tb and so that that was really damaging to her career and she had these she married very badly um but she also didn't didn't really have the glamour 
um, and uh, you know, sheer screen, you know, uh, magnetism that her sister uh, Dolores had, and I, I think that that all that together had had a lot to do with the fact that that her career never never really got the traction that Dolores's did. Um, you know, Dolores, of course. She just doesn't doesn't have a bad angle on the screen, and, and every part of her face is so so radiantly beautiful on on camera, particularly the silent camera, and particularly she was so she was so beautifully. Her, I guess what I'm trying to say is her her look uh, really took well to to really effective lighting. Hal Moore, which was her her beloved cameraman, um, really lit her so beautifully and really took advantage of all these great features that she had her her beautiful um pale blue eyes and that little turned up nose and that that lovely lovely mouth and and, and smile and everything that she had um ultimately what caused her career to, to kind of die out um, first of all, she didn't want to be a star. She she was essentially a, a, a domestic person who really wanted to have a family and 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 children, and so her heart really wasn't in, into film stardom. Um, sadly, Helene's was, but she just didn't quite have what it took. So then she, Dolores married John Barrymore and and gave up, uh, or actually, what she wanted to do was sort of be a part time star. So uh, what I also learned doing this, from doing this book is that Warner's had a clause in her contract, I don't know if other stars had this clause, uh, that basically forbade her to get pregnant lest uh, her contract was, was canceled. But she, in, in her typical belligerent fashion, said, well, you know, I'm going to do whatever the hell I want. And she, she did become pregnant in, in 29 and had her first child, Dee Dee. Uh, Dolores Ethel May Barrymore, who was a huge contributor to this book, and uh, after that, uh, they gave it. Warner's gave her another chance in Expensive Women in 1931. But then she got pregnant again with with Johnny, and then they, you know, they kind of washed their hands uh, of her. So she really, you know, she made a choice. She decided she chose domesticity, and which. I think it's it's reasonable to assume she would have become a really much bigger star in the 30s because she had this great, you know, Jack trained her voice and she her, the natural timbre of her voice was 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 rich and, and lovely. So she had everything that it took. Uh, in fact, her own view of it was, well, if I hadn't quit the business, there would have been no Betty Davis. <laughs> because according to her, Betty Davis filled the breach that she left when in, in the early sound era when she did, when Warner's term, terminated her contract. Um, so, yeah, she was kind of the master of, of her own destiny and, and really didn't return again until after her divorce uh, with Jack uh, in, in Little Lord Fauntleroy in 1936, which was a huge and amazing uh, achievement because she'd been out of the business for all this time. And David Oselznick decided this is the person that, that I want to play dearest in Little Lord Fauntleroy. And what he saw is what what all of her other, later directors saw in her, which is so ironic, considering that she was just as hard as a rock and as, as tough as leather. But on screen, she pro, she projects this this kind of maternal gentleness, this, this sweetness and vulnerability. And so, I mean, it's 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 acting, and yeah. it's just the, the way the way she comes across. 
she was later cast in, in mother parts, as she called them, and she hated them. She was really sick of being cast uh, as, as a mother. But that's pretty much what she got after little Lord Fauntleroy, because she is so motherly and so maternal um, towards uh, Freddie Bartholomew. In that film. Yeah, the, I mean, the obvious example <clears throat> that people would be familiar with is the Magnificent Ambersons that Wells, yes. you know, Wells, who well, I think... she had perfected it by then. <laughs> yeah, and I think he's underappreciated as someone who loved silent film and sure. tended to work things that he had seen in his, you know, early years into his later movies. Uh, you know, he saw her, the star of the twenties when he would have been a teen sure. uh, as, yeah. as embodying this book, which is certainly very autobiographical of himself in many ways, since it's about a yeah. uh, spoiled little brat who has the whole world in front of him. Right. Kind of. But, and, but interesting, Wells, as modern as he was, never really became a modern you know, he had this, this you know, kind of gilded, uh, sentimental uh, remembrance of, of his childhood in that, that era. So he loved, you know, he, he loved the period and he loved the architecture and he loved the dress and, you know, and which was, you know, kind of, I think, unusual in his generation. Right. Now, the interesting thing I thought looking through the various credits of the various characters in the book is, is that Wells turns up again because Maurice is in uh, Citizen Kane as he's in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington and various other movies that time. He was basically doing extra work, but he was right. one of those one of those former stars who the studios tended to put on the payroll, I think, out of some mix of sympathy and thinking it's good for the business yes. to be seen as being benevolent toward its former names and so yes, on. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Well, he, he got smart. For, for years, he refused to... Um, to kind of uh, be, get his his not his SAG card but whatever the equivalent was, um, and actually officially register himself with Central Casting, uh, mostly because Dolores was supporting him until she couldn't, and then he sued her. <laughs> um, a, a rare example of a father suing a daughter for child support or for support. <laughs> um, uh, but they ended up kind of settling. But that kind of got him, you know, out of desperation, uh, go, going back, uh, you know, in, into film, even though it was in a very, very small way as as, a, as an extra. Yeah, I don't know that I've ever really seen him in anything in the sense of that I recognized him or, you know, looked him out. But there's there's plenty of things. It's, he's hard to find. He's hard to find. There's got to be um, at least one where you really notice him. But uh, well, I yeah. found him. Yeah, I found him um, in the film that he makes with um, uh, with the King Vidor film. I, he, he's uh, in this big hallway scene, and he's, his snowy head is is uh, is clearly visible with Robert Young as as the star. And there's a photograph in the book of King Vidor and Robert Young posing on either side of Helene, who you can't find in the movie, but they both got, you know, a few days work here. Are these, you know, the, the, the greatest star of his time and the, the greatest uh, child star of her time are relegated to, you know, these, these right. tiny little insignificant appearances. Well, he's man carrying spear in the Seahawks. So maybe tonight I'll try and find him. I haven't seen that. Yeah. yeah, no. <laughs> and any more East sightings would, would, would be greatly appreciated that, that, that you, uh, 
coming that you discovered. You've mostly written about the Civil War and other historical things. How did you come on this story? Well, yeah, the backstory is is pretty interesting. I, I won't I won't draw it out because it's long. But to make a long story short, I had a farm in in Virginia eight years ago, and um, one day this this kind of random question just kind of just popped into my head, and it was who was the first great movie movie star? And I think what I meant by that was who was the the first actor to um, fit the, the modern description of a star in terms of, you know, what they did and what they represented. And, uh, you know, when, when no answer was, was instantly forthcoming, I began to think about it. And, and then I began doing research and then I started writing this book, which led me to, to the answer to my question. Being, you know, and what I didn't know when, when this, this question uh, occurred to me uh, was that was the end of my life as a farmer because <laughs> i started i started coming out here more i started i started um dating hillary bedell who as it turns out is john barrymore's granddaughter who uh, managed she and her brother managed to to uh introduce me to uh as i call her the holy grail uh, dolores uh, ethel may barrymore bedell the last living link to John Ethel and Lionel Barrymore and, and so many other people, and also knew her grandfather, Maurice Costello, and her uh, her aunt, Helene, and of course, her, her mother, Dolores. And now Hillary and I are, are engaged, uh, which is as, as, as marvelous as that was and is, uh, it put me as a biographer in the worst imaginable situation under the circumstances, because, you know, as you know, there are authorized biographies and there are unauthorized biographies. And the authorized ones are the ones where the family gives approval to what it is you can and cannot say. But I was very, I was very clear about the fact, for one thing, this is a, an academic press and everything has to be spit and polished. And, and I would do that anyway. I, I would never not tell the truth, um, you know, when it was an important part of the narrative. Um, but I, I was I was very clear that I, I, I with the family, as I you know am, am now a, a part of, uh, that I was not going to pull my punches, as it were, um, but that in all circumstances I would be fair. Um, and in life, you know what what you know what Kitty Kelly and what what uh, biographers who are who are into into being sensational do is you know they spin it towards towards the towards the sensational and the the outrageous but i was just going i, I was determined um to tell it like it was as you know based on the information that i had and i had so much information coming in with these these uh, untapped sources like helene's daughter uh deirdre leblanc um who just opened her archive to me and um we had had hours and hours of interviews together. The surviving members of of the Barrymore family, of which there's there's Dee Dee John's daughter and Hillary, uh, who's John Barrymore's granddaughter. Also, John Barrymore the third was one of the first people that I interviewed, and he was really cooperative. And you know, all all the surviving members except Drew, who is is really um, kind of estranged from from her aunt and, and cousins for reasons that uh, re remain unclear. So you were not 
scared off of marrying into a Barrymore family, even despite the track record that you were revealing in right. this biography. Well, here's the thing. Uh, um, Dee Dee has, has just started it. Uh, and as, as have a couple other family members. So I'm not out of the woods yet, but, <laughs> but, but at least I, I declared my intention, you know, to, to be brutally honest if necessary. And I, I, I think that that was under, understood and understandable under, under the circumstance, but we'll see how you, you, you want to we'll see how christmas dinner goes if i'm still yeah I'm, if i'm still alive uh, after new year's we'll know it, it, it went pretty well the link for film's first family the untold story of the costellos as well as a couple of online videos where you can see Maurice Costello in his heyday, will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Thanks to my guests, Bob Fermanek, Ron Palumbo, Ray Fayola, and Terry Chester Shulman. Theme music is by Kevin McLeod. Nitrateville Radio wishes you a happy holiday full of physical media, and we'll be back sometime next year. Thanks. Thanks.